And it's also the first week of our new series that we're calling Vital Signs. Now, whenever you go to the physician and the doctor kind of does your vital signs, what the doctor is actually doing is bringing three things together. He's taking your history, she's taking an assessment or inventory, and together plotting, hopefully, a better destiny. So history, they pull your chart out. Right? You should have visited the doctor in the past once in a while, right? That's kind of a good habit. And so you don't meet with the physician in a vacuum. You meet with the physician out of a historical relationship. But then there's a present inventory. And so she takes your blood pressure and you get weighed and you do pulse rate and all those kind of things. And then together, history, inventory, kind of maps out a better destiny. That's kind of the picture. But, you know, we do the same thing in lots of areas of life. In fact, usually when we turn the calendar from one year to another, we do that same thing. Lots of people around the world, and particularly in America, people dream up New Year's resolutions. All right, so let's do a little test. How many of you have this year had or established at least one New Year's resolution? Raise your hands. All right, you guys are probably under average a little bit. Um, the latest statistics say that 45% of Americans will make at least one New Year's resolution. That comes out to about 145 million people. My guess is, since it's January 8th, most of those resolutions have been broken already. Even if you didn't make a New Year's resolution, let me ask, how many of you would like to make at least one change in your life, in your relationships, in your marriage, in your work, in your finance, some, at least one change in 2017. Raise your hand. All right, go put him down. How many of you would like the person sitting next to you to make at least one change? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So even if we don't make resolutions, we do want to change. And so those changes come normally in similar patterns. So I Googled the most uh, popular resolutions that were made. So here we go. Some resolutions for this year, top 10. Number one, to enjoy life to the fullest. I'm not even sure what that means. But uh, that was number one. And you know what? You don't want to enjoy life uh, terribly, so to enjoy it to the fullest. Secondly, to live a healthier lifestyle. That's a good thing, right? Kind of get in shape a little bit, even though it's going to be painful. Number three, lose weight. That's always in the top few. Notice I've never seen in a top list of resolutions gain weight. Uh, lose weight. Number four, spend less, save more. They normally go together, by the way, right? You can't spend more and save more unless you've got some new stream of revenue coming in that nobody knows about yet. So it's spend less, save more. Spend more time with family and friends. Uh, we kind of like that, right? You realize, boy, I spent a lot of time, you know, doing my hobbies at work. And I need to spend more time with family and friends. The kids are growing. Pretty soon they're going to be gone. Um, pay down debt. That's kind of, you know, figuring out finances a little better, and maybe you see a lot more debt than you thought you were going to see in January after that Christmas you had. Get organized. How about that one? If you get organized, disorganization, stuff all over. After all, you tried to cram all those Christmas decorations back into the thing, like, where did they go? That's what I want to know. These people that fill their lawns, where do they put all that stuff? Learn something awesome. That was number eight. Learn. That's why you should come to Calvary, learn some awesome stuff. And when you find something awesome, let me know what it is. So I, I know something awesome then. Help others in their dreams. Isn't that a good one? 
You know, most resolutions are kind of self-oriented. You know, everything kind of orbiting around me. I want more money. I want a happier marriage. I want to do this. But number nine was help others fulfill their dreams. I really like that. Come alongside somebody else and help them live out their dream. And number 10, I want to fall in love. I'm already in love. I don't need to fall in love. But, and I'm not sure how you plan to fall in love. Like, you know, to kind of put the pieces together, hang out at the right place. Well, anyway, th- th- those were the top ten. I'm not sure what your resolution is, was, or should be. But I do know that when we turn pages in our lives, that's a great opportunity for us to bring together history, inventory, destiny. Those three things need to become part of our lives. And so whether it's when you go to the physician, history, inventory, destiny, whether it's when you go to your financial advisor, history, inventory, destiny, or whether we turn the calendar, history, inventory, destiny, it's a pretty good way for us to think about making the future different than the past. Why do physicians take vital signs? So that our future will be different. I like the graphic for our series. The desert parched past, but the vibrant, fertile, fruitful future. They're to pieces, right? And so maybe your 2016 was desertish and parched. Don't you want your 2017 to be more flourishing and fruitful? How are we going to organize life? How, is, how are we going to make that happen or be part of that process? Because I can tell you, if we do nothing... We're going to be sitting here at the beginning of 2018, exactly the way we're sitting here at the beginning of 2017, actually repeating another year. And so here's my hunch. Many of us are at the same place at the beginning of 2017. We were at the beginning of 2016, 15, 14, 13. We're kind of just repeating a year rather than transitioning change or experiencing transformation in a year. So how can we move and experience a change, not just that we desire, but change that God wants? Well, we're going to kind of switch up our metaphor a little bit. And this morning, we're going to look at two mountains. message could be called A Tale of Two Mountains. And we're going to look at vital signs, how we can plan and live a better future. How can we look and plan ahead so it'll be different than it was in the past? Now, the first mountain we're going to look at is in Deuteronomy chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 1. And while you're turning there, let me uh, tell you what's going on at the beginning of Deuteronomy. The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, are kind of a set. They go together. Technically, they're called the Pentateuch. Pent just means five, right? So, So it's the Pentateuch, the five books. Often they're called the five books of Moses. Deuteronomy is the last of the five books set. And here's the situation. In Genesis, God tells us about how he made everything, and then he calls Abraham. Abraham from a pagan country, Abraham from worshiping idols, and God calls Abraham to listen to God, to follow God, and he moves them to the promised land. Well, eventually there's a famine in the promised land, and Abraham and all of his descendants wind up going to Egypt. And while they're in Egypt, they multiply like rabbits. You know, no TV, no cable, no internet, so they have babies. They multiply, and the Egyptians are getting really scared. The Egyptians are saying, my goodness, these Israelites are multiplying like crazy. If we don't do something to put the kibosh on their reproduction rate, they're going to be a lot more numerous than we Egyptians, and they're going to take over. So they come up with a terrible plot, and they begin to execute all the male children of the Israelites. 
Well, eventually Moses is born and he's saved, and Moses he's saved from death in the, in the river. And Moses then becomes the deliverer. Moses, the redeemer, goes to Egypt, walks up to Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, God said he wants the Israelites, his son, to leave and go to the promised land. Well, eventually, through a series of curses, miracles, all of Israel leaves Egypt and they go to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God gives the Ten Commandments and all that kind of stuff. Well, eventually they wander in the wilderness, not wilderness like Pennsylvania wilderness, wilderness like desert wilderness. They wander around in the desert for 40 years. That's not because they didn't have a good sense of direction. It was because they didn't trust God. So eventually, after 40 years, they then stand on the threshold of the promised land. So they're right on the doormat of the promised land. They're right at the edge. The Jordan River's in front of them, and the promised land is just to the west of the Jordan. They're right there. This time, they hope they're going to make it, right? This time, God says, you're going to do it. This time, they're entering the promised land. This is going to be it. All of Deuteronomy takes place on that doormat to the promised land. So all the other books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, have given the history. Deuteronomy is just a collection of Moses' sermons before they go into the promised land. So Moses gives sermons, four big sermons, about what it's going to be like in the promised land, what you need to remember, and how you need to build your life as you enter the promised land. So as Deuteronomy begins, Moses, on the threshold, speaks to the people, and here's what's going on. So follow. I'll, I'll jump around a little bit, but I'll start in verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the wilderness east of the Jordan. Right? They're on the threshold. Jump down to verse 3. In the 40th year, so it took them 40 years to go from Egypt to the promise. It only should have taken a couple months. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. Jump down to verse 6. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, now that's Mount Sinai, just a different name for Sinai. The Lord said to us at Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain Break camp and advance into the hill country. All right, you see it? So here's what's going on. On the doorstep of the promised land, Moses is getting ready to tell the people, he's going to give them a series of sermons, enter the promised land. And the first thing he says, Moses says, remember all the way back at Mount Sinai? Remember 40 years ago, God said, you've stayed at the mountain long enough, get moving. It took us 40 years, and now we're finally on the doorstep. Why did it take 40 years? Because they didn't trust God. It should have taken a couple months. Remember, they were actually at the, at the threshold of the promised land before. They didn't believe what God said, so they sent them back, and they wandered around in the piece of land for 40 years. We have a map to show you. There's the map. Here's Egypt at the bottom, right? Mediterranean Sea above. There's the Nile Delta. So they leave Egypt. But rather than taking the short route, which would be just along the Mediterranean, walk along the beach. Wouldn't that be nice? Stroll along the beach all the way to the promised land, right? Rather than doing that, God says, no, 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 I'm not taking you the beach route. I'm taking you the Mount Sinai route. So they head out and they head south and they go to Mount Sinai. And on Mount Sinai, God speaks from the mountain and Moses gets the Ten Commandments and Moses comes down and says to the people, here's, the, here's the, our constitution as a people. Here's what God wants us to do. Have no other gods before me. Don't make any images. Honor your father and mother. Keep the Sabbath. Right? All those ten, God gives the Ten Commandments. But God also says a whole bunch of other stuff. God tells them that he wants a tabernacle so he can kind of travel with them and eventually they build the tabernacle. 
they actually stay at Mount Sinai for a year. They're there for a whole year. You know, God's telling them what to do. They build the tabernacle while they're at Mount Sinai. So they're at Sinai for a year. And now here's what, uh, what you need to know. If you were going to camp out somewhere for a year, don't you think you'd get pretty comfortable? After a month or two, you know, you're kind of working on the tabernacle. You know you're going to be there for I would get really comfortable. Surroundings would be familiar, right? You know the little cliche, right? The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. Well, you know, Sinai may not be the greatest place around. It is kind of in the desert. But you know what? It's familiar to you. And after all, you're not that far away from Egypt. If you want to go back, you can go back. And that's pretty lush and fertile back there. And so they become really comfortable. They become They kind of like it at Mount Sinai. Now, they're at the front end of the 40 years, right? They don't know it's going to take them 40 years. They're thinking it's going to take them a couple months. But eventually God says, you've stayed at the mountain long enough. Get your butts moving. Get out of here and go to the promised land. I have the sneaking suspicion. God wants to say that same thing to some of us this morning. You've been at this same place for a long period of time. Get moving. You've been at this mountain long enough. You've been at this situation in your marriage long enough. You've been in the work situation you're in long enough. You've been in the relationship with your kids long enough. You've been in your financial predicament long enough. You've been here long enough. Move on. Get going. The longer we stay somewhere, the more familiar and comfortable it becomes. They were only a year, and God has to say, you've been at the mountain long enough. Go. I kind of think as we're entering a new year, God's saying that same thing to some of us. Maybe to all of us in at least one area of life. You've been here long enough. Go. Well, I tried to think of some areas where maybe God is telling us we need to move on or we need to go. Um, I'll try to start them all with the word over. All right, over. Uh, how about this one? Overwork. Overwork. Technology is a wonderful thing. But technology provides an opportunity for us to always be at work, right? Even when your body's not at work, you're still at work. So don't raise your hands, but how many of you live with your cell phone face up wherever you are? You're with the family, but the cell phone's there. You're doing this, but the cell phone's there. It's in your pocket. All this to do is vibrate, and you're back in gear. Overwork, you're always on. You know, God's all for work. Work is given by God before sin entered the world. Do you know that? Some of you need to know that. <laughs> so work's not part of, the, part of sin. Work comes before sin. But God also gives the principle of Sabbath. And I think in our day, Sabbath is more a principle than it is a day. The day establishes the principle. In our day, Sabbath is a principle. And here's the principle. Trust God enough to not have to work 24-7. Can you trust God enough to allow God to do something while you recreate, while you recreate and rest from those labors. Trust God to do it. Remember, what was the problem that Israel's going to have when they leave Sinai and wander for 40 years? They don't trust. What's the reason that many of us overwork? We don't trust. We think if we're not working 24-7, a great opportunity may slip by. We're not going to be able to make it. We need to be on all the time, and we need to get every ounce out of this job and every, you know, every commission we can get, otherwise we're not going to make it. And the overwork, maybe God's saying, you need to move on from that mountain. 
and trust me as you go. Maybe it's not overwork. Maybe it's an overspend. You're saying, Charles, that's not fair. You can't talk about overspending the beginning of January. That's just not right. If the bills haven't all come, they're coming. Overspend? Again, what does God say? God's telling us to trust. Not only does God say, I give you all the resources you need to make money. Here's also what he says. I want you to take some of that money and put it into play to advance what I'm doing and to advance my mission. God could have designed ministry and mission to be done in any way he wanted, but he wants us to participate with him. And so he says, I really need some of your time, I need some of your energy, and some of your money to continue what Jesus started in the world. And so if we overspend or we consume every penny or every dollar that we earn on ourselves, we can't participate. And the, and the problem under that is we're not trusting we're not trusting that God can meet our needs and fulfill us without us using every dollar to either hoard it or using every dollar to put it to our enjoyment and our pleasure. So overspend. How about this one? Overcommitted. Over, any of you overcommitted? Uh, here's the solution. An easy solution, right? Easy solution if you're overcommitted. So you repeat after me. Ready? No. Here's how you stop being overcommitted, right? I'm amazed at how many times somebody will ask someone else to do something. They'll say yes before they know what the something is. We need to practice saying no. Now, don't say no when God wants you to say yes. But don't say yes when God wants you to say no. Maybe uh, at Calvary Church in ministry in different regards, maybe if we practice a little bit more trusting God among our volunteers... Some of our volunteers would say no, but that would force some that need to say yes to say yes because those positions are now vacant. And so maybe by a few people always saying yes, we're keeping some people on the bench that need to say yes, but they're not, they can't say yes until other people say no. Can you trust God enough to say, yeah, I know what God wants done, but maybe God doesn't want everything done by me, especially if it means I have no energy left over for the priorities that Jesus said need to be part of my life. Here's another over. Overeating. Overeating. Another one, unfair, right? The beginning of January, overeating. The gyms are full again, right? Like, I hate January at the gym, right? Everybody's there. Just give it a few weeks. It'll thin out again. Um, and, oh, that's too convicting. We'll move on. How about overreacting? overreacting. I'm not sure if you ever have this experience, but you probably know someone, and maybe you see it in yourself sometimes. A little baby thing, a seemingly baby thing happens, but a giant explosion follows, right? A little firework gets set off, a firecracker gets set off, but an aircraft carrier explodes in the house. What the heck happened there? Hey, here's what's going on. That overreaction probably means that there has been built up a whole bunch of other stuff. So now that becomes the last straw, and then the camel's back is broken, or that fuse on that little thing sets off a chain reaction where 15 other bombs go off that have never been dealt with. What's overreaction? Overreaction, again, at its core, is not trusting God. We have the same problem the Israelites had. Here's how overreaction is in trusting God. We know, or at least we think we know, exactly how our lives should go, right? So we write the script. 
And you have a script, I know, for your after. I have a script for my afternoon and evening tonight. I'm not telling you what it is because then you'll mess with it. Uh, but I know how my afternoon, I would like it to go, my evening would go. I know how I want my week to go. I know how I want my month to go and my year to go. And I kind of put that in place. If not in writing, I put it in my mind. And I kind of nail it down there. And then when something happens that is out of sync with my plan, I overreact. Why? Because I think my plan is the plan that needs to be implemented. And God has to remind us every once in a while, it's not our plan, it's his plan that really matters. Do you have that problem? Overreaction almost always is not having our script fulfilled, but having God tweak it a little bit, and we freak out. Overreaction. It's a lack of trust underneath. All right, how about this one? Overwhelmed. You know, do you just look at life and you shake your head and say, I, I'm overwhelmed. You're overwhelmed with what's happening in your family, overwhelmed with what's happening at work, overwhelmed when you look at your checkbook and your savings account or lack thereof, overwhelmed that you look at your retirement. You're just overwhelmed. Notice, underneath being overwhelmed is a lack of trust again, right? And so we really are in a similar position that Israel found themselves in at Mount Sinai. And so God says, you've stayed at this mountain long enough. Go. Let's not only learn from their example at Sinai, let's learn from the 40 years that they screwed up. And let's say, let's not repeat that lack of trust and wander around in the desert for 40 years. Let's move in the direction God wants us to move, head in that place out of the dry, parched, barren, into the place of flourishing and fruitfulness. Oh, and here's one other over. Leftovers. I hate leftovers, by the way. Um, now, I don't mean leftovers in your refrigerator. Some people like leftovers. It, it gets like it's a soggy mess usually for me, right? I'm not a leftover guy. But I don't mean leftovers in your refrigerator. I'm talking about spiritual leftovers. Occasionally, I'll talk to people, and they'll come up, and maybe it's because, you know, I get to speak here at church a lot. They often think they need to have a spiritual conversation with me. Like, I'd rather talk about football or something. And they usually, sometimes I get nervous when they say things like this. Oh, Charles, let me tell you, 20 years ago, God really did something significant for 10 years ago. You know, if I don't hear anything that's happened recently, I begin to think... Are you, kind of, are, are you tracking off of the leftover spiritually? Or are there new experiences in your life? Now, again, we can't contrive or manufacture those significant spiritual experiences. But we can put ourselves in position to experience what God wants to do. It's kind of like this. If you're in a sailboat, you can't make the wind blow and move the sailboat. But you can put the sail up. So when the wind blows, it moves your boat a little bit. How do we put the wind up, or how do we put the sail up spiritually? You figure out, even if it's a couple minutes a day, you figure out a little bit how you can make the Bible and what God says a little bit part of your life. You carve out a couple of times, you know, 90 seconds, five minutes, some time to pray. Look for an opportunity to serve someone rather than having to always be about you serving someone, helping build into someone else's life. Taking some of your resource, putting it into play for what Jesus is doing, not just consuming it all. See, put your sail up so that then when God blows the wind, you're not living on leftovers. The wind is kind of moving your life, transforming you to that place of flourishing and fruitfulness. I really like the word uh, at the beginning of verse 7 there. It says, turn. Now, if you're reading the NIV, it says, break camp. 
Yeah, right? It's actually single word turn, so I put turn in because I, I like that better. You know, the word turn is the same word for repent. And I say the word repent immediately, oh yeah, you know, in the little booth with the guy telling him all my secret sins. No, no, no. The word repent just means turn. That's all it means. It means change. And so here's what Moses says. Guys, remember when we were at Hor? Remember we were at Sinai 40 years ago? God said, you've been at this mountain long enough. You were here a whole year. It's time for you to turn. Change your perspective. Change your priorities. Change your behavior. And move in a new direction. You know, it's always a good time to do that. But maybe no better time than the beginning of a new year. So as we begin 2017, let's hear God say, you've been at this place in your life long enough. Let's change. Change your perspective, change your priorities, change, and let's make 2017 different. Let's hoist our sails so that when God does something, we can catch the wind and experience some change. All right, well, that's kind of the history and the inventory part, the situation part. Let's, let's talk about destination. Talk about destination. Where are they headed? And here's a really important part. The Israelites don't get together at the base of Mount Sinai and say, okay, now, we want to be a democratic nation, so we're going to take a vote and determine where we would like to go. You know, my guess, you know, if, if I'm then, I'm not voting to go to the promised land. I'm voting to go to Bermuda, the Caribbean, the, that's where I'm voting to go. But they don't get that vote. This is not a democracy. They choose the destination because God calls them to that destination. But sometimes all we do is recapitulate the past. Now, let me explain it this way. Dan Allender um, is a psychologist, uh, and he's written a number of good books. But he likes to talk about this principle that is really helpful for us. Here's what he says. Most of us often think our lives are lived linearly. And it works like this. Past, present, future. Kind of makes sense, right? Past, present, future. That works. Dan says, but that's not how it works. Here's how most human beings live their life. Past, future, present. And that's a problem. Here's what he says. Most of us experience a past. We then assume or project that past into the future. So if we were abandoned in the past, we assume we'll be abandoned in the future. We then construct life and live life in a way that guarantees we'll be abandoned in the present. And if you don't think that that's real, Go back and read the journey of the Israelites for that 40 years. What's the one thing that they keep saying to Moses? Let's go back to Egypt. Back in Egypt, we had fish to eat. Back in Egypt, we had leeks and melons and onions, kind of, you know, a Mediterranean diet. We had all those, and here we are living in the wilderness, living on this stupid manna. And every once in a while, we get a quail or something coming along. We want to go back to, what are they doing? past they're projecting the past into the future they were slaves but they conveniently forgot the slavery thing they had a lot to eat back then what do we do we recapitulate the past project it into the future and then live in such a way that we guarantee the past is the future because we live it in the present so what do we need to do choose the destination that god has choose the land that god has I've spoken at a couple of different places these past few weeks, and I've said the same thing both times. I'm going to tell you too. Here's what we often think that we need to do as church-going folks. We go to church. Here's what we need to do. 
we need to uh, take account. It's 2017, right? Beginning of a year. So even if I'm not making a resolution, I should plan, you know, something in 2017. Here's what I do. I need to make a plan. Then I, since, you know, I'm, I believe in God, I'm going to take my plan, lay it before God. If not, you know, on paper, I'll lay it before him in my mind and say, Lord, please, 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 please bless my plan. I'll let you in a little secret. God is not interested in the least in blessing your plan. I know that comes as a shock to some of you. Some of you are really distraught right now. God is not interested in blessing your plan. God's interested in you and me getting in step with his plan. So therefore, when you talk about destination, it better not be like the Israelites all at the base of the mountain taking a vote about where they want to go. It's listening to God and determining where he wants them to go. Then they plan. They plan how to move from where they are to where God wants them to be. And that's what we're going to do in the series for the next few weeks. We'll map out some of the particulars about where God wants us to be and how we can implement some of those things in our lives to get there. And whenever you're developing a plan, here's something you always have to keep in mind. Where will the pain points be? You ever notice that? If you develop a plan and you're going to change something, there are always going to be points of pain. So if you're going to have a diet, right, you're, I'm, I'm going to plan to lose weight. This I'm going to lose 20 pounds this year, right? There are going to be pain points. If you pig out every night at 1030, you can bet after one or two days the motivation's wearing down, you're going to the refrigerator at 1030. And so you better designate or, you know, at least mark the pain points and come up with something you're going to do when the pain point hits. You also need mile markers along the way. I don't know about you. I, I need... I'm kind of a goal-oriented guy, but I need objectives or steps. I'm not good at just saying, I need to be here at the end of the year. Um, we went to, a family went to a Penn State football. We, we went to the Michigan State game last time. It was a great game, by the way. But I was reminded, driving to Penn State, I did that a number of times when Ashley was in school there. I was reminded as I'm driving, when I would drive her back or forth, I would never look at the trip as one trip. It was, here's what I did. Northeast Extension, Route 80 to Buckhorn, Buckhorn to 99, 99 to State College. Four pieces, right? It was Northeast Extension, 80 to Buckhorn, Buckhorn to 99, 99 to State College. And then I would kind of tick them off in my mind. When I get off the turnpike, the Northeast Extension at 80, okay, that part's done. Get the Buckhorn as I'm driving by, that part's done. I'm more than halfway there. I get to 99, just one little piece left to go. You see, that's how goals work. Take the big goal, chop it into smaller pieces, and then you kind of get motivation along the way. Choose your, you know, designate your pain points, chop it into more bite-sized pieces, and then execute the plan. Most plans don't, don't fail because they're lousy plans. They fail because we don't execute the plan. So come up with a plan, designate the pain points, put objectives in, bite-sized pieces, and then work the plan. But that plan had better have the vision of God and the motivation of God all over it. Which really brings us to uh, the motivation part. And the motivation part brings us to our second mountain. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9 gives us the mountain. It's often called the Mount of Transfiguration. And I kind of like this mountain paired with the Deuteronomy mountain of Sinai because Moses is at both of the mountains, and Moses talks at both the mountains. That's pretty cool, right? 
So Moses at Sinai hears from God, comes down and talks to the people, and they wander because they don't trust God for 40 years. Well, here they are. Moses is on another mountain, and Moses is talking, but now he's talking to Jesus. So let, let me read the Mount of Transfiguration experience. We'll tease out a couple things from this mountain that will serve as motivation. Verse 28. After eight days, Jesus said this. Or G, after Jesus said this. He took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to them, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, tabernacles actually, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, parenthesis. He did not know what he was saying. Yeah, you could probably put that parenthesis after most of what Peter says. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. In fact, this time he gets corrected by God. It's one thing to be corrected by your mom. What does God correct him? While he was speaking, he doesn't even have the words out of his mouth, a cloud appeared and covered them. They were so afraid they, as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. Now what's going on? Little interest, uh, maybe an interesting little tidbit of information. You probably have heard that because Moses didn't trust God, that's his problem, he never got to enter the promised land. So he gives these sermons on the east side of the Jordan. He doesn't make it to the promised land, but this mountain is in the promised land. Moses actually does get there. Not before he dies, after he dies, he gets there. Now, what's going on with Moses and Elijah? Oh, here's what's going on. Moses is like in the hall of fame when it comes to the Bible, right? I mean, Moses is the guy. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, he wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses is a player, right? He, he's, not, he's not a participant. He's a player. Um, Moses is associated most closely with the law. The law is how God wants us to live, how God calls us to live. Moses is the guy, right? Moses is the hall of fame, like he's at the top rung. Well, what the heck's up with Elijah then? Elijah was the first of the prophets. So eventually you get Hosea, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel. Get those. But Elijah was the first one. And often the first one kind of sets the trajectory for those that come. So here's Jesus on the mountain. He's talking to Moses, and he's talking to Elijah, two Hall of Fame guys. Peter says, oh, I know what this means. I've got a great idea. How about if we build three tabernacles, a Moses tabernacle, Elijah tabernacle, Jesus tabernacle. Now, here's what, Mo, here's what Peter is saying, and man, here's what he's thinking. This is amazing. God is promoting Jesus to the position of Moses and Elijah. God is elevating Jesus all the way to the Moses-Elijah pinnacle. Jesus is being elected into the Hall of Fame. And Peter said, and I know the guy, right? I know somebody in the Hall of Fame. This is incredible. What does God say? Peter, shut the heck up. You're missing the point. I am not promoting Jesus to the position of Moses and Elijah. 
Moses and Elijah are nothing but pointers to my son, Jesus. Jesus is infinitely above Moses and Elijah. What does God say? This is my son. Listen to him. Now, he doesn't mean you don't have to listen to Moses or Elijah, but in comparison to Moses and Elijah, Jesus is infinitely above them. They're just signposts pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the pinnacle, above all the pinnacles. So what's that mean to us as we enter 2017? Listen to Jesus. How do we determine the destiny? It doesn't matter much what what your history was. And even the inventory, you have some resources. What matters most is the destiny. Listen to Jesus. As I said, God's not interested in blessing our plans. God's interested in you and me getting in step with his plan. And his plan will be intimately connected to Jesus. Our plan is all about continuing what Jesus started in our context. That's our number one priority. So when you look at 2017 and you want to figure out what you should build into your life and what you need to stop doing and what mountains you need to move on for, listen to him. And there's one other thing I want to say. What were... Look in there at Luke 9, because I'm going to ask you a question you need to see. Look, look in there at Luke 9. What were Moses, Elijah, and Jesus talking about? What does it say? Look in there and find it. What were they talking about? What was the point of discussion? His what? His departure. His departure. Um, now, that, that's not like a departure, you know, the departing flights are over here. Actually, and this is where, you know, I, I, I wish I could strangle the translators a little bit. Um, the actual word there is the word exodus. It's just transliterated from Hebrew. Elijah, Moses, and Jesus are talking about Jesus' exodus, his exodus. Now, Moses is the exodus guy, right? What was the exodus all about? Well, the exodus was all about, it was tied up with Passover, And Passover was all tied up with God's judgment coming, but the Israelites being spared judgment and being delivered from judgment because an innocent lamb took the place, was the substitute for the guilty sinners, and the sinners went free because the innocent lamb died. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. They're talking about Jesus' departure. When you read through Luke, the cross is just in the future of the Mount of Transfiguration. They're talking about the ultimate exodus. They're talking about the deliverance that Jesus brings. And Jesus is not pointing to the promised land. He is the bridge to the promised land. There is no entrance into the promised land apart from Jesus. And so listen to Jesus. If you want your life to be different, you want to move from parched and desert to flourishing and fruitful, listen to Jesus and put into practice what he says. And if you want to experience experience flourishing and fruitfulness, follow Jesus. But we often want to follow other things, right? And my guess is, left to our own devices, we will come up with resolutions, whether we call them New Year's resolutions or just plans for the year. We'll come up with something that makes increasing our finances the priority, Maybe makes building a better relationship with so-and-so the highest priority. Maybe the priority will be this or that career, this or that job, this or that objective. I'm not saying all those things are important. They're very, very important. I'm saying this, though. Only Jesus leads to the promised land. He's the bridge. So when you and I set our sights on 2017, if you don't want to be beginning 2018 the way you're beginning 2017, 
Listen to Jesus, the Son of God. Put into practice what he says. And when you're formulating your plans, make sure those plans sync up with who he is and what he's calling us to. And if you want to experience all that God has, follow him. Now, you'll experience some other tangential things along the way. Follow him. Listen to him. Follow him. That's how we should enter 2017 and every other year. I'm not saying that that means all of your dreams and wishes will come true this year. I'm saying if you listen to him and you follow him, you're headed in the right direction, not just for 2017, but forever. The rest of the series, we'll map out some of the details of what that looks like, but that's kind of the overarching principle. Let's commit to that motivation so the other messages fit in their place. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks that you not only tell us what and why, but you tell us how. Thanks for the example of the Israelites, both positively and negatively, of not trusting, trusting and wandering. I pray, Lord, that 2017 would not be a wandering year for us. May it be a year of listening and a year of following. We pray in the name of Jesus who offers that to us. Amen.